2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Today, this morning, we're going to continue our teaching series on apostolic identity. This is our second session. God bless you. you may be seated. That's worth laughing about. Amen? Rest. Praise God. So Wednesday, we launched our series, Apostolic Identity. If you weren't able to be here with us or watch online, then I'm going to try to give you the elevator pitch version really quickly. God is perfectly holy. That's who he is. It's the core essence of his nature. But you and I, sorry to uh, disappoint you, we are not perfectly holy. But as believers, the Bible calls us to pursue his holiness and seek to adopt his character in our lives. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1 and 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The writer of Hebrews would say it this way, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We do this by obeying, by emulating, by practically applying the doctrines, the truths, the principles, the practices, the character of Jesus Christ and the New Testament apostles and this and that is our apostolic identity. Paul, to the Ephesians, succinctly articulated that this is a lifelong pursuit. It is a daily process of, one, putting off the old nature of sin. It involves then being renewed continually by the power of the Holy Spirit in our minds, which allows us and empowers us to put on a new nature that pleases God. That is a snapshot of what our apostolic identity is all about. It is about putting off our old, our carnal nature. It is about being renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit and it is about then putting on and embracing and adopting a life that honors and glorifies God. That's what we're striving to do. We are striving to be Christ-like. And it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit. On our best day, with our best intentions in mind, we cannot live a life that pleases and honors God. We are dependent upon the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. 
and His Spirit in us empowers us to live in a way that pleases God. That being said, though, and unbeknownst to some apostolics that I have met in my day, pursuing holiness is not a dour life of drudgery. Why don't you just smile at someone right now? Right? Pursuing holiness is not a life of drudgery. We don't do this because we are afraid of going to hell. That would be a foolish and miserable way to live. And futile, by the way. Instead, it is, this, it is the matchless love. It is the unconditional love of Jesus Christ that motivates us to want to consecrate our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't do this because I have to. I don't want to please God because I'm afraid of going to hell. I'm not doing this like I've got a whip being lashed across my back. I do this because I stand in the shadow of the cross. And when I look upon him and his love for me, when I recognize that he loves me unconditionally, I cannot help but to respond by consecrating my life to Jesus Christ and seeking to honor him. John said this clearly in his 1 John 4 and 19. He writes, we love him because he first loved us. In the next chapter 5 and 2, he writes, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. You see, as recipients of the amazing grace of God, as beneficiaries of the matchless love of Jesus Christ, it, it is our pleasure, it is our delight to be able to live a life that honors, glorifies and pleases God. It's what we wanted to. It's what we desire to do. We're compelled to do. Certainly, putting off the carnal desires of our human nature, it isn't always cheap or convenient. Taking up a cross of consecration involves self-denial, and nobody naturally enjoys that. But it is compelled. We we are compelled by God's great love. And so you and I, when we have a proper perspective of Scripture, and when we have a proper perspective of Jesus Christ, we willingly and we joyfully choose to pursue after Him and His holiness. I willingly want to please God. I joyfully want to honor Him. It is, again our delight. Amen. This is what Paul would say to that. 2 Corinthians 5 and 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, 
then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer to themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And if you believe that, can you just say amen? Amen. amen. And so it's to this end that the Apostle Paul masterfully explains to the Corinthian Christians that there is both a necessity and, yes, there is a motivation for why we pursue and seek to perfect holiness in our lives. Some of these first century Christians were struggling with the same misconceptions that still plague much of Christianity in the 21st century. These Christians in Paul's day had fallen prey to the false teaching that there was no need to separate themselves from their surrounding pagan and perverse culture. In other words, God's grace and their salvation was independent of their attitudes, their actions, and their appearance. They believed that as long as they had experienced a new birth, according to Acts 2.38, and as long as they professed with their mouth that Jesus was Lord of all, that they erroneously believed that they then could do whatever they wanted, they could live however they wanted, it really did not matter to God. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, backed by the whole witness of Scripture, he did not agree, and he forcefully did not agree. Paul understood he had witnessed this church that he had planted in Corinth, and now he saw that the mixing and the mingle of the holy with the unholy, the secular with the sacred, had produced this church that was filled with bolsterous worship. They loved to strum the guitars and hum about how much Jesus loved them. They enjoyed worship, but they were also pretty brazen in their carnality all at the same time. They were a church that was zealous for the supernatural. They loved speaking in tongues, and they couldn't wait for God to use them in the gifts of the Spirit. But they were pretty proud at the same time that they were tolerant and even condoning of sexual immorality. They were a mess. Confronted by this debilitating chaos, Paul writes to them. And Paul insists sharply that they must live a holy and a distinct life. Paul rebukes those converts who had misunderstood grace and used it now as permission to please themselves with pagan pleasures. Paul does not hold back, but he in loving kindness unloads on those who were being misguided with era of hell that was seeking to destroy the church there in Corinth. To be sure, Paul was the champion of God's saving grace. Paul believed that all could be saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ according to 
the scriptures. But in that vein of according to the scriptures, Paul was equally clear that you cannot engage in idolatrous practices and remain reconciled to God. They are incompatible. It is here that Paul, in fact, uses a mosaic of references to the Old Testament to forcefully reveal the era of thinking that we can assimilate with the sinful world and somehow still please God. Paul would have nothing to do with that. So in 2 Corinthians 6 and 14, here is what he says. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's his opening statement, and it says it all. We are a member of the Holy people of God. And so we cannot and we should not link up in thought or action with anyone or anything that compromises that identity. I am a blood-bought son or daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ and he has called me out of darkness and he has called me into his marvelous light and anything and anyone that compromises that identity, I must separate from them or that. Now that is an unusual economy of words for Paul but yet he effectively utilizes the familiar word picture of a yoke. Maybe not so common to us, but maybe you've seen it somewhere. A yoke was a farming tool that linked two farm animals together to pull a plow and, and therefore be able to plant in a field. Once yoked, the animal could no longer act independently, but was bound to the relationship and the actions and the direction of its partnering animal, Paul. And, and, and he creates this picture, but you know, here today, can you imagine a farmer trying to plow a straight line and he's got this massive ox on one side and this puny donkey colt on the other? You don't have to be a John Deere farmer to understand that's not going to work out very well. In fact, that's going to be futile and disastrous to the goal at hand. That's the image Paul is trying to convey. That as a believer, when you are unequally yoked with an unbeliever, it is inevitably going to lead to spiritual compromise and spiritual disaster, and it will never work out well. That's what he's saying. That was a short sentence. Said a lot, but he's Paul. He's a lawyer in heart, and he likes to unload with the pen. So he does. And he gives five rhetorical questions, and they revolve around mutually exclusive and illogical relationships. And Paul uses these questions to illustrate the utter absurdity of thinking that our attitudes, our actions, and our appearance doesn't matter to God. So here they are. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? That's one of the most common uh, motives of the entire scripture. Light versus darkness. They don't mix and mingle, right? What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan or evil? 
What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, I think you probably get the imagery like oil and water. None of these five illustrations mix and mingle. They do not work together, and that's the whole point. That's exactly what Paul is trying to convey, that there is a divine mandate, that as spirit-filled believers, we are called to live distinct, separate lives from any and all idolatry. As spirit-filled believers, we are called to live separate and distinct lives from any and all behavior that is associated with a rejection of God. And you can read Romans 1 to see the list of where that leads to. But he's Paul. And so without even pausing to catch a breath, without lifting his pen from the parchment, Paul just keeps writing. And he continues, but now he's taken time to remind us of not just the task at hand, not just the divine mandate, but Paul wants us to also understand the why of separation. He wants us to look in the mirror and recognize just who we are in Christ Jesus. So now he says in verse 16, For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. You know what? The next time you're feeling a little discouraged, you need to go to 2 Corinthians 6 and 16. You need to look in the mirror and you need to say, God has said... I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. And they, you and you and you and you and me, we are the people of God. Paul's use of covenant language here is not accidental. Paul is underscoring that both the promises and the responsibilities of being in covenant with God. Whether you're in the old or the new, we walk by a faith covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul reaches back to the Old Testament and brings application into New Testament to say, as it was then, so it is now. There is both a promise and there is a responsibility of being in covenant with God. We are God's people. You are God's people. Would you just say that out loud? We are God's people. You've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. You've been filled by the holy presence of God Almighty. You are the dwelling place of the holy creator God who fills the universe. You and I individually and collectively, we are the people of God. We are the dwelling place of God. We are the temple of God. And Paul wants us to understand that, that this is our joyful and it is our reverent reality. It's our privilege and it is our responsibility as God's people. Because Paul, what do you think he does? He keeps writing. 
And so he says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. This is not tradition. This is not Paul's opinion. This is not legalism. This is, says the Lord. Amen? Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. Anchored in Scripture as always, Paul's demand is clear. As God's people, we must separate ourselves from the sinful and the carnal influences of ungodly people and ungodly culture. It is the call of an apostolic believer. But again, Paul's application of covenant language here in the New Testament is not inconsequential. It matters. We ought to pay attention. And in fact, it helps us resist two false narratives that can plague believers even in the 21st century. Number one, the Bible does not advocate never ever advocates for us to isolate from interacting with our world like spiritual recluses. Maybe you'd like to go to a commune somewhere, but that is not the biblical plan. We are called to be salt and light, and that requires that we be seen and heard and are present Failed. We are commissioned as ambassadors of reconciliation and that necessitates that we connect and that we communicate with unbelievers. But that being true, the governing test for our interaction and the governing test for our communication always involves this question. Who is influencing who? On the spectrum of the holy and the unholy, which way are you headed? You might have been a pagan last week, but if your face is towards Jesus Christ and your back is towards sin, you are perfecting holiness in the sight of God. But you could have lived 50 years and have all of the outward figured out. But if your back is towards Jesus Christ and your face is headed towards the things of this world, you are not pleasing to God. You are not perfecting holiness and you will not remain reconciled to a holy God. Who is influencing who? Because here's what else the Bible does not teach, which is a false narrative. The Bible does not teach that we should ever compromise our apostolic identity in order to reach unbelievers. Quite the opposite. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 5 and verse 6. He said, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. That's pretty, that's pretty stern. So Paul says, don't be fooled by them. Verse 7, don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. What does it mean to live as people of light? 
Don't be fooled by those who think they can mix and mingle the holy with the unholy. Don't participate in the things those people do. That was what you used to be when you were full of darkness. But now you've been called out of darkness and you've been called into light. So live as people of the light. And here's the bottom line. We will only be an effective witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ through consecrated compassion, never through carnal compromise. Your carnality will never attract someone to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the anointing of your consecration, you can't help but attract them to a greater power, a better way, a holy God of grace and mercy and compassion. Therefore, Paul said, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. But Paul keeps writing. Aren't you glad he does? Because now he begins to highlight covenant promises for those who will consecrate themselves to God. You see it at the end of verse 17. And I will receive you. It's the second I will promise God gives to those who will pursue holiness. I will receive you. It may be abused by some, but it's still a true statement. Come just as you are. I will receive you. But when I receive you, I'm going to cleanse you and transform you. And my door is always open to you. Then verse 18. Here's the third promise. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty you see, separating ourselves from sin and worldliness has never been about merely being different. There's a lot of crazy wackos who are doing their best to be different than culture, and they're glad about it. That is not the goal of separation. The separation has always been for the express purpose that you and I can be in covenant with a holy God. It has always been for one purpose alone that we want to please our heavenly father that we are sons and we are daughters of the almighty God and why would we not why would you not want to please him why would you not want to walk in a manner that honors him why would you not want to live in covenant with a father like that as his sons and his daughters we are the recipients and we are the beneficiaries of eternal hope. It doesn't matter in our worst moment, on our worst day, when all of this life comes crashing down. Even as we cross from time into eternity, we can do so with an eternal hope. We can live with a hope that is not contingent on our circumstances. We live in the assurance that some glad morning we shall see Jesus in the air coming after you and me and joy 
is ours to share. So why would we not want to live in covenant with God when we are the recipients of mission and meaning of life? We live in a world where therapists are abounding on every hand. People don't understand what the meaning of their existence may be. But you and I, we understand. I have meaning. I have mission. I belong. I am a son and a daughter of Jesus Christ. Don't ever take for granted that you have unspeakable joy. Don't ever forget that you can live with all-encompassing peace and that you always have enough. Amen. As spirit-filled believers, this is the promise of covenant. This is the reward of living in consecration to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am so grateful about it. So it's no wonder. We shouldn't be surprised. It's only logical that Paul now wisely includes all of these biblical promises of covenant as he wraps up his teaching and we read our text at the beginning of our time. 2 Corinthians 7 and 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In one verse, Paul encapsulates the privilege and the responsibility of our apostolic identity. Having these promises, let us dedicate ourselves to the daily process of perfecting holiness. Having these promises, let us adopt the attitudes and the actions and the appearance that pleases and honors God. Having these promises, let us awake every day with joy and with delight to serve God and to please Him. Let us govern our lives by the truths and the principles of His Word and let us walk fully consecrated to a holy God having these promises. This is our apostolic identity. So let me just set the record straight. Holiness is not a cuss word. Holiness is not a legalistic abuse of grace. Holiness is not a power play by spiritual authority. Holiness is who God is. And it's who God is is calling us to become. So do not let Satan use the fallibility of humanity to deceive you into rejecting the infallibility of God and His Word. There have always been rebels. There have always been hypocrites. There have always been charlatans hiding in the church. They existed in the first century with the apostles. 
They existed in the church that knew of people who fell dead from disingenuous actions in the house of the Lord. And yet that church still had the rebels and they still had the hypocrites. And you know what? In the 21st century, we still have them with us as well. They explain away truth and justify compromise. They profess one thing publicly and they practice something else privately. But here's the bottom line for you and I. I'm not going to be judged by the standards of the hypocrite. I'm not going to be judged by the standards of church tradition and what the church came to believe. I'm not going to be judged by the cultural standards of my present age. I'm going to stand account before a holy God, and I'm going to be judged by his holy word. So having these promises, I say, let us perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. Having these promises, let us seek to honor and glorify and please our great God. Amen. Amen. You can say that with a smile on your face and joy in your spirit and purpose in your life. But, but I, I felt last night, I felt compelled for, I don't know which service, who, where, or how many. But I just felt that I needed to appeal at the end to someone who is sincerely struggling with the teaching of God's word as we've seen today. For someone who genuinely is wrestling with questions that have confused them. Someone that maybe you've even excused yourself from the practical application of biblical truth under the false premise that it's just tradition. So today... In Christ's stead, I'm humbly asking and begging you, please don't fall prey to the painful rebellion of the prodigal son in Luke 15, who rejected the sanctity of the Father's house for the pleading pleasures of his present world. And on the other hand, please, please don't fall prey to the isolated misery of the older brother who profess love and loyalty, but he practiced distance and disobedience. Today, I'm urging you in the fear of the Lord to abandon the spiritual alienation exhibited by both brothers. Today, on this day of grace, I'm inviting you to run into the arms of a loving Father who will forgive and will transform you from the inside out. He's not afraid of questions. His word addresses all the questions you might have. There's a clear answer between his word, spiritual authority, and the guiding of his spirit. God's not afraid of your questions. If you are sincere and you will come to him, he said, I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You will be my son. You will be my daughter. If you're able, please stand.
My prayer today for all of us here, all of us who are watching online, is that we will accept the challenge laid down by the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 12 and 1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, let us all, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him despised, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, turning our eyes to Jesus, looking fully into his face, Having these promises, I pray that we would all choose to embrace and live out our apostolic identity, perfecting holiness in holy reverence of a holy God.